Well, I want to welcome everybody to week two of our series, Unlikely Heroes. Uh, Those who are with us online, so glad that you're with us as well. Um, We are talking through this series about different men and women in the Bible that we see and how they're very heroic. But one of the things that you may think about and kind of initially is that, man, these must be like rock solid people of faith. You know, they're unwavering, they're unshakable, they're never afraid. They never mess up. They're just, man, they are just tried and true. But uh, it actually couldn't be further from the truth. Um, the, the heroes of the Bible, pretty much everyone we meet in, uh, in the Bible besides Jesus, um, has a lot of issues. And the more that you dive in, the more that you see that, man, these men and women are pretty messed up people. Uh, last week, we, uh, we kicked off with a guy named Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who's better known <laughs> actually most famously known for his doubt. And um, we talked about him. And then uh, next week, we are going to be talking about somebody who was constantly messing up. In fact, um, man, I mean, just mistake after mistake after mistake after blunder after blunder. Um, but man, did God ever work through him. And, and really, this is what's so cool about this Unlikely Heroes series that we're doing this summer, is that If God can work through the men and women that we're taking a look at in the Bible, if God can do amazing things through them, then what does that mean for you and me? It means that God can do amazing things, can work in and through us as well, even if we don't necessarily believe that. So if you're here this morning and um, and you're, you're just struggling, like you're struggling in your faith, or maybe you'd say, no, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm struggling, but maybe you could at least agree that you, you'd like to be a little bit more motivated. Those, those religious activities, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, you wish sometimes they didn't feel like have-tos, you know? Like, oh, I really, I really have to do this. I really should do this. But they feel more like want-tos. How do we go from have-to to want-to? How do we increase our motivation when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our relationship with God. And, it, and if that's where you find yourself today, then um, I've got a question for you that I want you to wrestle with. And I believe that if you wrestle this one question to the ground, that you will, it will help you tremendously in your journey, whether you're struggling or whether you're just looking for a little bit of motivation. So we'll, we'll talk about that question in a bit. But um, today, we are going to be looking at an unlikely hero who had no motivation problem whatsoever. In fact, she was so fired up, she was so devoted to Jesus, it's actually one of the reasons that she's controversial. It's one of the reasons that she got the reputation that she has today. And this woman that we're talking about today is none other than Mary Magdalene. She has been the subject of so many rumors and conspiracy theories. She's had documentaries and books and movies done on her. She, in fact, she's even had a Lady Gaga song inspired by her. Um, and, and really all of it is around the idea that Mary Magdalene is this scandalous person. She's kind of this lady of the night and she's got this crazy immoral past And you see it reflected in Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. You see it in Dan Brown's mystery thriller, 
the Da Vinci Code. And you see it uh, m- most recently, actually, um, in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, which just a couple months ago was aired live on NBC. And it's kind of all around this idea that there was actually this romantic involvement between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, this scandalous, scandalous woman of faith. And so really the, what I want to explore for a few minutes is where did all this controversy come from? Like, how, how in the world did Mary get such a reputation? And is, is any of it true? Like, is there any validity to it? Where, is, is there biblical evidence that, that gives us anything? So we're going to unpack that for a few minutes. Um, and actually, to trace back where really the rumors all started and where Mary got this bad reputation, you got to go all the way back to 591 AD. And in 591 AD, Pope Gregory I gave a sermon on Mary Magdalene. So Pope Gregory I, known as Gregory the Great, um, he, he basically was trying to paint this picture of who Mary Magdalene was, and he made some pretty big assumptions. And uh, what we'll come to see is that he made a pretty, pretty great mistake. Um, because what he did was, as he's talking about Mary Magdalene, is he tied her to Luke chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, where uh, it says that a woman uh, who lived this sinful life came to Jesus with this alabaster jar of perfume and she kissed his feet and she poured perfume on them. And Gregory the Great, who had tremendous influence in the Roman Empire because the Pope at that time, I mean, there was no bigger figure than that. He basically said, so this woman who lived this sinful life with this alabaster jar of perfume, she was actually a prostitute. And that was his, that was his working assumption. Because, you know, a prostitute would use perfume in what she did. And so this must have been a prostitute. And then he took this passage of this anonymous woman with another incident of a woman anointing Jesus' feet in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about Mary from Bethany. And Mary from Bethany, she pours perfume on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And basically what, um, what Gregory the Great does is he says, okay, so this sinful woman, this prostitute, um, that's actually this Mary that we read about in John 11, 1 and 2. Never mind that there's seven different Marys in the New Testament, but he's basically sure that, that okay, must be, must be a Mary here, and it's got to be Mary Magdalene. And so what he does in this sermon in 591 AD is he fuses these three different accounts, these three different women together. And now Mary Magdalene from here on out is known as the repentant prostitute Mary Magdalene, the devoted follower of Jesus. And so it's not hard to see where things went from there, is it? Repentant prostitute, Devoted follower, and there you go. And what's crazy is, it wasn't until 1969 that Mary officially gets her name cleared by the Vatican. And, uh, and so, you know, you've had almost 1,500 years. And so by that point, I mean, the damage is done. And so this is where Mary is the subject of all these crazy movies and books and all these other things. So here's the question. 
So who was Mary Magdalene? I mean, we, 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 we understand, you know, the rumors and all that stuff, but like, who was she really? What, what historical basis do we have? What do we really know about her from the accounts that talk about her? And so we're going to take a look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four accounts of Jesus, where we see Mary Magdalene uh, appearing in places. And we're going to start in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And this is what Luke writes. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. That was his twelve male disciples. And also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, check this out, and many others, many other women followed Jesus. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So here we have Mary Magdalene listed as one of Jesus' followers. And as we talked about last week, back then when you would write these accounts, order mattered. So whoever was first in order was first in importance. They were a very significant figure, more significant than the others listed after them. So here we have Mary uh, called Magdalene. And here's how she gets her name Magdalene. So Mary was a very common name. It was probably the most common female name back there in that region. And so in order to differentiate one Mary from another, or one whatever name from another, um, you would have Mary, um, wife of so-and-so. So you would, it would be linked to your husband, very male-dominated patriarchal society. So if you had somewhat of an important husband, you would be the wife of so-and-so, or you'd be Mary, the mother of somebody. And if you weren't a wife and you weren't a mother, then you would get your name from where you were from. And so Mary was from a, a little village called Magdala. And uh, that was down by the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing town. And so she was then known as Mary Magdalene because that's where she was from. Now, it's worth noting that 2,000 years ago, and you probably already know this, but um, a rabbi having female disciples was not a normal occurrence by any means. And so what we see here is this is an extraordinary thing that Jesus does. And some of you may never have noticed this before because you've always just kind of thought, oh yeah, Jesus and his 12 male disciples. But Jesus had tons of disciples. And what's awesome to see is how Jesus honored and empowered women. And one of the things that pains me to no end is when people use Christianity as a way to put women down or to try and get, you know, women to take a step backwards because nothing could be further from the truth. And anybody who does that, you guys, anybody who uses Christianity as a way to say, oh, you see, like women should come second. They've never read the Gospels. They've never truly and honestly looked at how Jesus over and over and over again meets with women, empowers honors women. Here we see he's got female followers and they were significantly involved in his ministry, helping to support him and the 12. So the big thing that we see uh, in this passage about 
Mary Magdalene, probably the most significant thing, is that it says that she is someone from whom seven demons came out. Now, I'm no expert in demon possession. I, I must have missed that class in seminary. I just, or, you know, whatever. But, and if you're an expert in demon possession, I would love to, to talk to you about that because I'm sure it'd be a fascinating conversation. But um, I, I am, you know, I've read the gospel accounts a lot. And, and one of the things that's fascinating is you see all these places where it's documented that Jesus is casting out demons. And while we don't get like specifics on exactly how that happened or what that looked like, what we do have specifics on is the symptoms that these folks suffered from, their afflictions. And um, so I think it's interesting when you, when you kind of take all those different accounts, all the different people that Jesus healed from demon possession, what you find is that um, sometimes you'll have accounts where the person who was possessed by a demon was suffering from some sort of a mental or a psychological issue. As in the case in Matthew chapter 8, where there's these two guys that are in the cemetery. You might remember this story. And uh, they're so deranged, they're so violent, that no one dared even go near them. And Jesus casts out demons from them and heals them. But, but most often, actually, the, uh, the symptoms of demon possession were physical afflictions. So you have Jesus countless times. He's casting out demons from people who were blind, deaf, mute, who were suffering from seizures and convulsions, who were crippled. And, um, and Jesus heals them, uh, casts out these demons, and then they are healed of their physical afflictions. So some of the time it's mental and psychological, but most of the time it's physical. Now, we don't have detail on what Mary Magdalene's symptoms were, but here's what we do know. She was suffering from seven demons, possessed by seven demons. So we can all take a guess as to what her life probably looked like. So most likely physical symptoms. I don't know, blind, deaf, you know, it's hard to know what, what that would have looked like. Um, probably psychological and mental as well. But what we know is because she had seven demons, she was in bad, bad shape. And so after she's healed of these seven demons, she becomes a follower of Jesus. And what we see is that Mary is a tried and true, super devoted follower until all the way till the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, where Mary Magdalene gets the most airtime is around Jesus' death, around Jesus' burial, and around Jesus' resurrection. We see in uh, John chapter 19, verse 25, Mary Magdalene is at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary's sister, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas. Do you track with all those Marys? You see what I'm talking about? It's confusing, you know? We give, I guess we give uh, um, our, our friend Pope Gregory a little bit of uh, leeway there, because it's a little confusing, but... Um, here we have Mary Magdalene at the cross. And I just want you to imagine this for a minute, okay? So the reason Jesus is on the cross is because the religious leaders of the day have been threatened by this movement that Jesus is stirring up. And so they have incited this angry mob. They have stirred up this mob of people who are screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And, and you know, they, they go through up to the hill and there's Jesus on the cross. And you can just imagine that there's still that mob of onlookers and they're, they're, they're beholding this. So 
I mean, you got to figure Jesus was the leader of the movement, but his closest followers, they were, they were leaders too, right? So, you know, I mean, that's a dangerous place to be. And here we have Mary Magdalene there with some other women. That takes unbelievable courage, you guys. You know who we don't see there, incidentally? A lot of the 12 disciples. And, you know, maybe being a man, you know, there was much more of a threat there, potentially. I don't exactly know. But still, the only one we see of the 12 is is John at the cross. But there you have Mary Magdalene pushing through her fears, showing unbelievable courage. But the other thing that we see with her being there at the cross that is very telling about her is her incredible devotion to Jesus. Think about this for a second. It's easy to be devoted when it's going well, isn't it? I mean, man, we all love a winner. How about them calves, baby? How about them calves? I am telling you, I've been waiting all sermon just to say that. Oh, that feels good. Um, it's been amazing. And, and I, got to, I got to go to three of those watch parties that they had, you know, where you go downtown and you go to the Capital One Center and watch. You know what's crazy about it? So much fun. Um, so, so game one, I was there, you know, and like it was pretty crowded, like a little bit of the upper section of the center was, was, was filled in. Then I went to game three and like almost the entire stadium was full. And I mean, you just, you know, and then you get to the progression. Now we're at like game four and I mean, it just, it just builds and builds. Why? Because we love a winner, don't we? I mean, the most devoted people, they were there. They've been there from the beginning. But man, the more they started winning, the closer we got to game five and clinching. I mean, it's just, everybody's going, man, this is the place to be. And I loved it, by the way. So, Fairweather fan, beautiful. I love you. Okay? I'm not, don't feel bad. Be, be happy. We're celebrating. It's great. But, um, but here's the deal. So, Jesus' ministry is taking off, right? He's doing miracles. He's teaching. People are jaw-dropped with awe over what he's saying. People are getting healed. and I mean, it's just amazing. It's not hard to be a follower then. It's not. That doesn't show your true devotion. What shows your devotion? It's when the team's losing. Where are all the Vegas Knights fans right now, okay? Okay, that was mean. That was mean, but... I mean, seriously, there's... We got one. He's, he's in the house. I love it. I love it. Okay, beautiful. Sorry, man. That was, that was low. That was low. All right. I just can't help myself. Too much losing. Okay, anyway. So the deal is that you learn more about who's devoted who your sold-out fans are in the bad times. Can we agree on that? Okay, this is a bad time. Okay, the movement's essentially over. There's no more miracles happening. Jesus is on the cross, and they're all mocking him, saying, oh, son of God, save yourself if you're, you know, you're really God. The movement is over. And guess who's there with the losing team? Mary Magdalene. Do you see the devotion. It's unbelievable. It's actually Mary Magdalene who um, finds where Jesus' body gets laid. We see that in Mark uh, 15, 47. So um, this is a very significant moment because um, we've got this whole empty tomb resurrection Easter story thing. I mean, they had to know where the tomb was. 
And Mary Magdalene is there to see that. So she is there till the bitter, bitter end. Um, and in fact, a few verses later, Mark 16, 1, we see that it's Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, another Mary, and Salome, who buy spices to anoint Jesus' body. This is after the Sabbath. And um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of what's happening here. So Jesus was crucified on a Friday. And it's late on Friday afternoon, we read, that, that Jesus actually dies. Well, these are Jewish people and Jewish law. Jewish law was that you could do no work on the Sabbath, which started Friday at sundown. It's almost Friday at sundown. Jesus has died. And so there's this mad scramble by this guy named Joseph of Arimathea and this other guy, Nicodemus, who both have connections to people in high places. And, uh, and basically, they're secret followers of Jesus. And they want to take the body down and honor Jesus and give him a proper burial. burial. But they They've got to do it very, very quickly because once, once sundown happens, you can't do that. You can't move the body. That's considered work. And so literally tons of bodies, what would happen to them is they would be ravaged. They'd be eaten by wild dogs. And I mean, just all sorts of things would happen. And so they're scrambling to get Jesus' body into the tomb. And I guess, I don't know, this is total speculation at this point, but I'm guessing that Mary Magdalene and these other women are seeing this thing go down. They're like, Okay, guys, that's a good effort, okay? I mean, you got him in the tomb, but, you know, you could have anointed him a little bit better than that. So, so they, um, they, they decide they're going out after Sabbath, and they go and they buy all these spices, and they are going to anoint Jesus' body correctly, okay? Any guys relating to this, okay? You've ever, yes. Some, some things, men, we just can't do right. So, so here, here goes Mary Magdalene marching down there, And uh, this is where we pick it up in John chapter 20, verse 1, and then we're going to go 11 through 18. It says, early on the first day of the week, this would be now Sunday morning, Sabbath is over, we know today is Easter Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seating where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But check this out. She did not realize it was Jesus. So he asked her, Woman, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Now, time out. Last week, we talked about doubting Thomas, and we talked about that some of us need a lot of evidence to believe. We need, we're big R people, and I gave you this formula. Belief equals reason plus faith. That any belief, which is the B, is comprised of these two things. You've got to have some logic and reason, right? You need some evidence, and then you also, there's an element of faith. So that's where you have belief equals reason plus faith. I want to give you, if you're a big R person and a little F Um, I want to give you uh, just a little bit of reason why you can at least trust that this account is not some fabricated account. Because here's the deal. 
if, let's just say that the leaders of this movement, now that Jesus has been killed, are like, man, we look like a bunch of fools. And we kind of like the power, you know, and all the influence that we had. And, and now it's done. And he was claiming to be God. So that's kind of a problem, you know, when you die. Because you're God, you can't die. So we're done. So the movement's over. It's not like he gave a set of like, you know, do these awesome things and whatever. He was like, no, 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 it's through me. I'm God. I'm going to rise. You put your faith in me. So the disciples, if, if Jesus didn't actually rise and he just died, they've got a, they've got a problem. So let's just say they get in a room and they say, okay, well, we're going to make up a story. Let's make up a story. Okay, we'll steal the body. That's first and foremost. We'll get the, somehow we'll steal the body. And then we'll tell everybody that he rose and it'll be awesome. And we'll be the next rock stars. So here's the thing. If you were going to do that, you would never, never say that Jesus appears to a woman. Okay, and ladies, don't take offense by this, okay? 2,000 years ago, Women had zero rights, zero. You couldn't get divorced, okay? You weren't allowed to. You couldn't give testimony in court. It was invalid. Aren't you glad that we live when we live today? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, exactly. So you would never, a woman's testimony went nothing. You would never say that Jesus, the first person he appears to is a woman. And then she goes and tells the guys, ridiculous, man. I mean, even scholars who are, you know, don't even buy into Christianity, they're like, yeah, but this, like, this is, this would not be fabricated this way. It really wouldn't be. The other thing about this that is so intriguing is, you guys see this, right? She, She can't believe it. I mean, she thinks they've stolen the body, which was kind of what people were saying to kind of refute this movement, right? The, the religious leaders were like, oh man, they, I'm sure they just stole the body. They stole the body. She's actually saying the same thing. I mean, you would never have this appear. What, what you would have in the account is immediately she would see Jesus. And what would she do? She'd fall on her knees. Oh, Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. This is crazy. You wouldn't make it up this way. You just wouldn't. That's, it's helpful for me. I don't know if it's helpful for you, but it's helpful for me. Um, verse 16. So she's just said, okay, just tell me where you put the body, Mr. Gardner. Okay. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And with that word, something clicks for Mary Magdalene. It says, she turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And that word tells us something that we know about Mary Magdalene. Only a disciple would call a rabbi that word. Only a disciple would use that term. So she was truly a disciple of Jesus. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You can just imagine. She, she realizes, oh my goodness, it's not the gardener, it's Jesus. And she just runs over and just grabs him, you know? Oh, this is so amazing. And he's like, Mary, 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 this is great, okay? But we both got things to do and places to be, okay? I got work to do, you got work to do. So he says to her, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So it says that Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. 
unbelievable. So here we have arguably the most devoted follower of Jesus Christ with him all the way through his death, the tomb, then early that morning, the first person who sees Jesus risen from the dead. How in the world was she so devoted, you guys? This is incredible. She didn't lack motivation, did she? This wasn't a have to. This was a want to. Well, where did this come from? Well, let's not forget where she came from. Seven demons. We don't know what that means exactly, but we know it wasn't good. She was in horrible, horrible shape. And what we know is that she owed her very life to Jesus. And so, quite simply, she couldn't stop thinking about what God had done for her. And I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're struggling in your faith, if you wish that you could just have a little bit more motivation, if it wasn't so much a have to and it was more of a want to, it's actually kind of simple. It's wrestling with this question. What has God done for you? What has God done for you? And when you think about that, don't think about the answer that you should give because you know you're in church right now. Oh, yeah, 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 this religious answer or whatever. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. Honestly, what has God done for you? What, what value has God brought to your life? So if we can really, really honestly, brutally honestly, wrestle with this question. It's a game changer for you. Game changer. Because once you realize what God has done, not what you think you should say, not what people tell you, oh, here's the the correct answer, the Sunday school answer, the church answer. No, no, no. Personally, in your heart, what do you believe God has done for you? Once you are in tune with that, guess what? It's all just about responding. It's about loving God back. You don't need to summon all this, oh, I really should. Are you tracking with me? So what I've asked our music team to do is to just create a a couple of minutes here of sacred space. And I want you to, if you have a pen and paper, go ahead and, and write. Just list out some things that you truly believe in your heart of hearts that God's done for you. Or if you have your phone, take it out in the notes section or whatever, send an email to yourself and just, and just write. What has God done for you? Because there's some of you, and the reason that you're stagnant right now in your faith, the reason that you're, that you're so frustrated or you're angry with God is because honestly, you don't believe God has done anything for you. And that's okay. That's honest. That's actually a great starting point for a conversation with God. But if you're honest, is that true? Has God really not done anything for you? What has God done? for you. Let's wrestle with that for a couple of minutes. Allow the words to this song to wash over you and just write or think. Close your eyes. Meditate. Let's get in touch with what God has done for us.